there was a man driving in his car, coming upon a, a light, and it turned yellow. And while he thought he probably could make it, he decided to go ahead and put on his brakes, and he came to a fairly quick stop. The guy behind him didn't appreciate that very much. He, he was in a hurry and thought he could make the light too, and so he laid on his horn, shattered a few obscenities, a few hand gestures, beat on his dash. Uh, but he was interrupted uh, in his rant by someone tapping on his window. It's a police officer. And much to his surprise, he asked him to get out of the car. He handcuffed him, took him in, fingerprinted him, put him in jail. A couple hours later, the officer showed back up and let him out and said, Sir, I'm sorry. Uh, I think there's been a mistake when... When I heard your language and saw your hand gestures and then looked at the back of your car and saw that little fish emblem and the bumper sticker about loving Jesus, I, I just assumed the car was stolen. <laughs> See, that man had labels, um, but you couldn't tell what those labels meant by his actions. We began last week talking about uh, labels. We talked last week about um, the label Christ follower and, and what that meant. It said that um, Jesus said that a, a Christ follower was, follower was someone who denied himself. That is, he didn't try to project a certain image to the world. We said a Christ follower was someone who took up his cross, and we described that as, as someone who did not live up to the world's expectations of them. And we defined a Christ follower as someone who actually followed Jesus, not someone who just pretended to, but was willing to associate with Jesus even if things got tough, even if things uh, were pressured, if there was persecution. This morning we're going to look at a different label. We're going to look at the label body of Christ. Uh, what does that mean when we take on that label as an individual church or as individuals if we said, I'm part of the body of Christ? What does that mean? What does that communicate to the world? What should it communicate to the world? The phrase body of Christ shows up just a handful of times in scriptures. A couple of those, it actually refers to Jesus' actual body. Um, Romans 7, 1 Corinthians 10. But some other places, it refers to the church. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, we're going to look today. There are a few other phrases like that, his body or just body that refer to the church. Uh, there's a lot of things we can learn about what we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to look like. But I, in my mind, this Ephesians 4 passage is probably the clearest explanation of, of what we're to be and what we're to be about as the body of Christ. And so this week and next week, uh, we're going to look at the first 16 verses, verses of Ephesians. I'm going to read the whole thing this morning, but we're just going to look at the first six verses this morning. So if you would follow along, beginning in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attained the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word and thank you for a chance to gather and look at it together. Pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds and ultimately our wills that we might truly be your body here on earth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You really, it's hard to start in the middle of a book. You can't really start in Ephesians 4 unless you understand why he says in the beginning, therefore. But a couple of weeks ago, right before Christmas, we talked about Ephesians 1 through 3. We spent a whole Sunday talking about the fact that God has indeed blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we went through and looked at about 16 or 17 of those blessings that are found in the first three chapters of Ephesians. We have been adopted. We have been called. We have been forgiven. We've been justified. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We've been given an inheritance. We've been given a promise of the future. We've been put together as disparate people in one body. We've been given access to the throne. We who didn't have any hope at all have been given hope. We who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And all of those things are extremely wonderful blessings should be, can be encouragements to us on a regular basis. And, and I would encourage you on a regular basis to make it a habit to read through Ephesians 1 through 3. We need to be reminded that God has done amazing things for us. But it's dangerous to camp out there, to just stay there. Because after God pursued us, after God regenerated us, after God justified us, after God saved us, He opened up a, a world to us that included some expectations. Like if a, a family adopted a baby. That baby had no choice. That baby didn't get to say, well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But afterwards, after those parents pursued that child, there were expectations placed on that child that you're part of a family, and, and we do things as a family. Now, those parents would, would help that child learn how to do that, would bring them along, would encourage them and nurture them. But nonetheless, there are expectations. And beginning in chapter 4, Paul lays out, in a sense, some expectations for what it means to be the body of Christ, what it means to be part of his family. Keeping in mind that first God pursued us. 
these are not requirements into the kingdom. These are, in a sense, what do we look like now? What, what do I look like now that God has saved me, now that God has redeemed me, now that God has made me His own? Now that I'm His child, how does this family operate? And then Paul spends three chapters talking about that. He begins, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Um, that word implore um, kind of has two meanings. Um, one is it could mean to comfort or encourage. Another meaning is to, to urge or even to plead with. Regardless, it's the idea of, of you coming alongside somebody in their need. It may be that they're down, discouraged, depressed, and you come alongside them and give them comfort or encouragement. It may be that there's someone who needs to take some action, needs to either get out of sin or, or get into righteousness or make some movement, and you come alongside them and say, let me help you, let me encourage you, let me implore you. I plead with you, change the path you're on. That's the word Paul uses here. I implore you to some action. And then there's this kind of aside. I, the prisoner of the Lord. I think I've said before in here, I don't think there's any throwaway phrases or words in Scripture. It's all important. Here's Paul fixing to ask the Ephesians to do something, and he tells them his state. He's a prisoner. And I think subtly he wants to communicate, what I'm about to tell you is not dependent upon your circumstances. What I'm about to encourage you to do, to be, doesn't matter how others treat you, where you find yourself, what situation you're in. This, this walking in a manner worthy of your calling is, is an expectation regardless of how you find yourself. Just because people are treating you poorly doesn't mean you treat them poorly. Just because someone scowls at you doesn't mean you can't smile back at them. Right? There are no conditions where what I'm about to tell you don't fit. But he implores them to walk in a manner that's worthy of their calling. That word worthy... Um, it's that which corresponds to what's already been done. In other words, a, a, a paraphrase of that may be, I urge you to live a life that corresponds to the wonderful blessings that God has given you. Think about it as a, as a balance scale, right? God has done all this for you, and your life should, in a sense, correspond to that, should, should equal that. Now, granted... That may seem like a, a high calling. How could I ever match up to the wonderful blessings that God has given me? Well, you can't. We're going to see that in a moment. We're going to see that it's more than just me pulling up my bootstraps. But there is a very high bar that has been set. God has given everything to you and me. And now that we are part of that family, there are some expectations. So what are those expectations? There are three that he talks about in those first six verses. Number one, there's an expectation of humility. 
Second, there's an expectation, expectation of patience. And third, there's an expectation of desiring unity. He starts off in verse 2 with all humility and gentleness. Technically, those two words, even though they don't seem like it, are, are synonyms. At least in, in Greek they are. Um, humility is that word that in Philippians 2, Paul uses the opposite of selfishness or conceit. So in other words, if I'm going to be humble, if I'm going to walk in a manner worthy of my calling, then I'm going to be selfless and I'm not going to seek to promote myself. I'm going to seek to be humble. That's part of what God has called us to be. But Paul also uses that word and Peter uses that word in humility as in the context of subjecting ourselves to one another and ultimately subjecting ourselves to God, the sovereign of the universe. And so humility in another sense is kind of like John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. To walk in humility means I'm not putting myself forward. I'm putting other people forward. Most importantly, God. To be humble, to walk in a manner worthy means, in a sense, I recognize who God is. And I recognize who I am. I'm underneath that. And, and I recognize that ultimately I'm in, I'm in subjection to the other members of the body of Christ. That what I think is not most important, but, but you are important. And how, how do I relate to you? That next word, gentleness, goes along with that. Um, literally, it, it's, I don't think that my self-worth is that important. Um, I don't have an overly impressed sense of self. Another way to think about that word gentleness, there's, there's two extremes. There's that person who is, we might call, overbearing. I need to give my opinion all the time, and you need to agree with it. You know people like that, that are, that are overbearing. That's not gentle, right? And we would all agree with that, but I think oftentimes we go too far to the other extreme. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is not, I'm never going to give you my opinion, and if you ask for it, I'm just going to assume it's not that important. That's not gentleness either. Gentleness is not weakness, and it's not overbearing. It's that middle ground where you always say the right thing at the right time, and you never say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Now, that, that requires a lot of wisdom. That requires a lot of practice. That requires, in a sense, knowing what the right and wrong things to say are. But let's think about Jesus for a moment. Was He not like that? Was He not humble and gentle? Did He not put other people before Himself? Yeah, the cross proves that. Was He not willing to consider Himself... Did He not consider His deity as not as important as it needed to be. He veiled that. He left heaven to come to earth. And ultimately, he always had the right thing to say at the wrong time. He was never afraid of saying the right thing when it needed to be said. He was never afraid of confronting sin. But he certainly wasn't overbearing. But he also wasn't weak. There were times when he was silent. There were times when he didn't say something. 
There were times when he kept his mouth shut. But he always had the right thing to say at the right time to the right people. That's gentleness. Our Savior was gentle, and we as the body of Christ should be that way as well. So how are we doing with that? Are there areas in your life where you feel like you just have to put your two cents in regardless and sometimes it doesn't come out well? Are there places in your life where you need to think about, am I always trying to impress someone? Am I always trying to to bring up things to make me look better? Are you humble? Are you willing to keep your mouth closed when it needs to be closed? The best place to start, if if you're not sure, is in prayer to ask God, but where am I not like my Savior? And then be willing to listen, be willing to sit quietly and, and let Him expose the depths of your heart. God, where am I not humble? Where do I wear the label, body of Christ, and yet I don't look like Christ? I'm not gentle. I'm overbearing. Or maybe I'm I'm weak. I don't speak up when I should speak up. I don't say the things that I should say. There's a great passage in 2 Timothy 2 where um, Paul is talking about how we respond to unbelievers. And he uses that word gentleness. Right? The unbeliever doesn't want us to be overbearing. He doesn't want to hear <laughs> sometimes our self-righteous, arrogant attitude of, I know the truth and by golly, you need it. But the unbeliever does need to hear truth. Are we gentle as we deal with those who don't know Christ? Because that's what Christ does. Think about all the people He interacted with. Uh, Just read through the Gospel of John sometimes. Everybody He talked to, He dealt with differently. From stern rebuke to a gentle warning to a loving touch. He always had the right thing to say to the right person. It wasn't, there's not one size fits all evangelism. It doesn't work. Are we willing to get to know people, to be involved in their lives? So first, we need to be humble and gentle as the body of Christ. Second, we need to be patient. Um, Patience is tranquil waiting for an outcome or tranquil waiting when I am under persecution or trouble or weighed down. It's peace in the midst of the not yet. That's what patience is. Peace in the midst of the not yet. And as the body of Christ, whether that's waiting in the line at the grocery store, I'm waiting, waiting for the outcome, for the checker to ring up those 40 items in the 20 item or less line, right? Are we patient? Or when we're waiting for that loved one that we've been praying for for years and years and years to for God to get a hold of them, for them to see the light? Are we waiting patiently? Are we tranquil? What, how are we known as? Are we, are we worrying and anxious? Or are we encouraging and praising? Are we angry? Are we calm? As we think about being patient, waiting for the outcome... What's our state of mind? That can't happen, I don't think, without remembering all those blessings 
in the first part of Ephesians. Remembering that God is sovereign, remembering that He's in control and that He has equipped us for the task that He's called us to. And not only that God is sovereign, but that He's good and that we can trust Him. And then in the end of verse 2, he says, showing tolerance for one another in love. Um, literally, probably bearing with one another. In, in this case, this is the context of the church. He's not talking about those outside, but we all know those people in the church that are hard to bear with. This is, is putting up with those people, in a sense, that are hard to put up with. This is loving those people that kind of get on our nerves. Those people even exist in the body of Christ. And the question is, and it goes along with patience, are we willing to endure them for the sake of Christ? He certainly endured us. He certainly endured me. He certainly still endures me. Someone that's hard to get along with, someone that is unlovable, someone who doesn't measure up to to His standards, and yet He continues to pursue me. He continues to pursue us. And so as the body of Christ, do we do that with one another? Are we willing to engage those people that drive us crazy in the body of Christ in love? That requires patience because, you know what, it's not our job to change them. It's our job to love them. And so it requires patience because there's an outcome that we'd love to see. We'd love to see someone's personality change. But it may never do that. We'd love to see them get some of the things that we've gotten. Oh, yeah, I understand this. And How come it's taken them so long to get that truth? And I'm sure God's up there going, how come it's taken you so long to get that truth? Are you and I willing to bear with one another in love? Even those people that are hard to bear with requires patience. So the body of Christ is humble. The body of Christ is patient. And finally, in verse 3, the body of Christ seeks to preserve unity. Um, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That word being diligent means we are devoted to that task. It's, it's someone who, there's this great thing that I want to accomplish. I'm going to make sure all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Um, it reminds me of when I was, was preparing to ask Dana to marry me. There were lots of things that I had to get in order. wanted it to be perfect. First of all, I had to get out of debt. took a lot of time. took some sacrifice. took a lot of hard work. Took uh, renting a room from a guy when I was enjoying living by myself. That probably was a good thing if I was about to get married, right? Learning how to live with someone in the same room. Um, it took finding time to go and look for rings and making sure I found the right one. And I hate shopping. You know, just point me in the direction. There's one. I'll take it. No, it slowly and surely, here's the right one. Um, finding a time to go visit her parents when she didn't know I was leaving town to go up and ask permission to marry her. And then gathering ingredients for a dinner I was going to make her and making sure I followed those directions. All of those things went into and I was diligent to make sure it all went off perfectly. That was the plan. 
That's the same word, right? That's what he's talking about. Are you diligent to preserve unity? And it's not diligent to make unity. See, we've already been unified. We read that in chapter 2 of Ephesians. God unified us through His blood. He broke down the barrier, that dividing wall, right? We are one. But the question is, are you diligent to preserve that? Are you working hard? Are you devoted to making sure that unity stays intact? By your actions, by your words, by your attitude, by the way you think about other people, by being humble and being patient with one another, in a sense. And then in verses 4, 5, and 6... He kind of lays out what that looks like, but he does so using the analogy of the Trinity. That wonderful, perfect expression of unity. Three persons, one God. And he does it kind of in backwards order. He starts with the Spirit and then moves to the Son and then moves to the Father. Look at verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. The reason there's one body is because we know that we are all together the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are one body because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all together because of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Once He comes into your life, you're part of that body. You can't be removed from that body. And so He says there's one body, there's one Spirit, there's one hope of your calling. Where do we get that hope from? Well, from, again... Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. There's a guarantee. There's a promise. This isn't the hope-so of the world. This isn't the hope-so that Phil has that the Giants are going to win today. It's not that kind. This is a confident assurance that what God promised, we will have in the future. That's the hope that we have. In verse 5, he moves on to the Son. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. A Lord almost always in the New Testament refers to Christ. There is just one Christ. We have one Savior. There's not a multiple number of ways to get to God. There's one. One Lord. He's sovereign. There's one faith. We, We don't have faith in this and faith in that. There's one object of our faith. Jesus Christ. There's not any other way. And when he says one baptism, I don't think he's talking about water baptism. I don't think he's talking about spirit baptism. I think because of the the progression of these verses, I think he's talking about what we looked at in Romans 6. There's one baptism into his death. We are united together because we have believed in the sufficiency of the gospel that Christ died according to the Scriptures and was buried. On the third day, He rose again according to the Scriptures. And when we believe that, in a sense, we've been baptized into His death. And that's the best news for you and me because Paul writes, when we've been baptized into His death, so also we'll be raised with Him. We've died with Him, we'll be resurrected with Him. And because we have died... We are dead to sin. That's why this is possible. 
Before that transaction took place, you didn't have a choice whether you really wanted to be patient or not or humble or not. Oh, you could fake it on the outside. People could apply external pressure. A parent could apply external pressure and force you to behave a certain way. But your heart couldn't do that. But after Christ has redeemed you and changed you, after you've been baptized into His death, Paul writes, we're free from sin. You don't have to do that anymore. That's why Paul can give us expectations, because they're achievable. Perfectly no. We have three horrible enemies. The world doesn't want us to be patient or humble or unified. Our flesh does not want us to be patient or humble or unified. The devil does not want us to be patient or humble or unified. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, right? So it's possible. That's why there's an expectation. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us to empower us and encourage us. But part of sanctification is we get to join in that process. We get to choose. That's why Paul answered that question. Are we to go on sinning that grace may abound? No, no, no. See, that's an option. Right? That's an option. I can take advantage of God's grace. I think if if you don't understand that possibility, there's a chance I I could take advantage of God's grace. Then my guess is you don't understand what grace is. But Paul says, no, that, that, that's not, that shouldn't be an option for us, even though when we understand who God is and what He's done for us, it comes into our minds. We've been baptized into His death. You are free from sin. Finally, in verse 6, we have one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He's over all, He is sovereign. Not just of the church, but the world. We owe Him our allegiance. He is creator. He is holy. But He is good and He is over all. He's through all. God has a purpose. That purpose is for His name to be glorified through all. Out the earth. That purpose has been the same since the creation through the Old Testament into the New Testament. That's his purpose. What's odd is he chooses to do that through people. In the beginning, in the garden, Adam and Eve made in his image, told to multiply, so that image would be spread throughout the earth. And now through the body of Christ. He works through you and I that His name may be glorified throughout the earth. We're going to talk about that more specifically next week as we look at verses 7 through 16. But that floors me that God would choose to work through me. But He does. And that's part of our unity. Because see, not only does He choose to work through me, He chooses to work through you and you and you. And you, and you, and are you willing to be worked through? That may be the the biggest question this morning. Because that sometimes costs us. It all the time costs us. Because we have to give up ourself. 
Am I willing to let God work through me to accomplish His purposes, whatever that looks like? Wherever that leads us. Now, I know sometimes the fear is He's going to lead me overseas to some place and I'm going to live with dirt and bugs in a hut. It may just be He wants you to get rid of yourself and stay where you are and love those around you. But it could be anywhere in between. We're His. He can do with us what He wants. And that may be frightening and scary, but do we trust Him that He's good? And then He's in all. For me, what a a great way to end this passage. There is an intimate relationship that each of us have with the Father. And I can't say that that my relationship or your relationship is more important. He is in all of us. I can't say that my gifts are more important than yours because He works through all of us. I can't say that I'm higher up in some scale in the kingdom of God because He is sovereign over all of us. And that's a call to unity because I need you. We need each other to allow God to work through us. To encourage one another that God is sovereign over us. To remind one another that God is in all of us. That we have a relationship with the Almighty God, the Creator. Sovereign, majestic, holy, wonderful. And He has called us into what we call the body of Christ. What I don't want that to be is just a label that you take. I want us as the body of Christ to think about those things. Am I willing to to really take that label and own it? Am I willing to be humble? To be patient? To strive diligently towards unity? Because we need each other. Because if not, it would be like, well, it would be like going to the Tuesday flea market and buying a Rolex. My guess is that's just a label. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for the example of our Savior who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, who patiently woos us and pursues us even in our sin. I thank you for the example of of your relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three in one. The majestic God whom we love and serve. Father, you are good to us and we are thankful for your goodness. Father, may we be truly the body of Christ here in our families, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. And not just wear a label. But may we think long and hard. And may you show us, God, we ask, we plead that you would show us where um, we are just wearing a label. And where we're not seeking to be the things that you have called us to be. But God, remind us of our calling. Remind us of what you have done for us. 
And then, God, we ask that your Spirit would uh, empower us to be obedient. And to bring you honor and glory in all that we say and do. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.